All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another roundup of Bell Curve. You got Michaels one and two, Yano and Spencer Son, who's back from his uh, two-week tour in <laughs> Japan. <laughs> welcome back, brother. We missed you. Yeah. Thanks for uh, carrying the torch while I was gone. Appreciate Man, it. Let me ask you, did you, did you listen to us? Did you listen to us while you were gone? Like, I did oh, listen to the last one, um, but not the intermediate one between those. But, you know, I thought you were pretty good. That's a good thing that you didn't listen. Yeah, I think there's some comments. Yeah haircut or something yeah. that yeah. you know, no let live but we're <laughs> chirping there's some promises made yeah there's some promises made we'll we'll see if they're kept um yeah well michael and i are now synchronous in our hairstyle so feels good also right in the world yeah there does seem like there's a little coordination on the uh the framework side and the hairstyle yeah adam has adam got you guys going to the same uh so yeah tell us about the trip um yeah it was it was a lot of fun um you, like i said used to live in japan so have some experience out there and went to eat tokyo and then i did a quick trip to korea and also <laughs> met a bunch of the people who had come from the other uh crypto conference uh in hong kong so it was a good kind of uh you know view of like the entire landscape and seeing everyone um I guess the the quick breakdown that I would give is ETH Tokyo was uh, it was either the highest or the second highest amount of submissions that they'd ever received for the hackathon, um, and it was a really good mix of local Japanese and and foreigners that were there. And when I used to live in Japan, there was like a very very small crypto scene. Uh, the government would have to give you permission to to list new tokens on exchanges, and effectively the whole scene was was Bitflyer. And, you know, when I lived in Japan, it was like CoinCheck had been hacked, Mount Gox had been hacked, like the government was like pretty negative on the entire space. But, you know, the amount of submissions that you had for that hackathon, you had government officials coming around to saying, you know, DAOs are going to be, you know, uh, or, or recognized as legal entities by the end of the year. It really feels like kind of crypto and AI are, are Japan's like two prongs. Sam Altman was also with OpenAI not for East Tokyo, but for just like pushing that tech agenda. Um, and so Japan basically missed all of Web 2. And it looks like they're determined not to miss Web 3. And, you know, who knows if if any of the projects coming out of these uh, hackathons are going to be billion dollar companies or decacorns or whatever. But it felt like that was the first local event to really have a lot of activation energy just for the local scene. Um, and it was awesome. Like, you know, ETH conferences in Japan are always very special. DevCon Osaka was the last one I was at, but it was just super cool to see people building. And Japan has a lot of IP, you know, things like anime, manga, Pokemon, whatever you want to call it. A lot of the focus there is like putting digital collectibles on chain. I think that's pretty cool. Um, and so that was Japan. Uh, and I would say like Japan is just starting their their kind of crypto journey, but it's being pushed by by the local government and went to Korea as well. Um, and the vibe I got from Korea is just that they're living in the future um, from, you know, things like, you know, Web3 and crypto to iPhone and internet adoption to just like the prevalence of plastic surgery. And like, you know, you look at all the Netflix or Netflix top shows, it's like all K-dramas. You look at the headliner from Coachella, it's Blackpink, who's a K-pop group. Like, 
for their size of country, it's like probably a 50 or 60 million person country. They're punching way above their weight in terms of technological adoption and, and just like global clout. Um, and I came away from Korea just like even more convicted in Web3 gaming. There are so many Web3 gaming companies that are building in Korea. Like one of these is going to hit like law of large numbers. Somebody's going to make something happen. All of the local big gaming companies are marching in the direction of putting things on chain. Um, and I would say that, you know, we're going to see a bunch of games come out of there and probably the next year, like they're pretty early on in terms of their development cycle. Like most of them are launching like their land or NFT PFP collections this summer. So like call it a year until they really get going. Um, and Korea, just like a bunch of really interesting consumer apps as well. Uh, I mean, the, the other part that I kind of like talked to, but didn't go to talk to people that went to the HK conference. There's so much excitement coming out of China as well. Apparently mainland China is now kind of back open in terms of being able to access exchanges. There's a bunch of provisional exchange licenses that are being given out, um, that are effectively facilitating the on-ramping of spot and fiat flow. And unlike two years ago, uh, there looks like there's actually off ramps to these exchanges. It used to be like you'd P2P trade USDT for bank accounts. That's been formally outlawed and they've like actually put in proper off ramps. So between everything, just like super positive trip and always inspiring to get like a little perspective from the different parts of the world, because, you know, you sit in San Francisco long enough, you, you definitely get a little bit stale. Um, and so cool to just be out there. That was a long winded uh, explanation, but yeah, it was a great trip. A lot of fun. What were the non-crypto things that Korea is so advanced on? I mean, like, if you haven't watched this show, it's called The Glory. Um, it's like the show on Netflix. Um, you know, like, that's, like, very advanced. Like, you think about things like Squid Game. That's, like, just, like, very advanced, like, pop culture art. And I would say, like, pop culture, television, movies, like, they're probably a year or two ahead of where the U.S. is in terms of just the depth of storyline. And, like, you watch these you know shows and, like, it's been a while since there's been an American show that I've kind of, like, not been able to turn off. And, and Korea definitely has that. K-pop is, like, this new art form where the music doesn't really matter as much as, like, the community and the group. And, like, with the rise of AI and stuff like that, that like, that's kind of where music is going, in my opinion. Um, and then iPhone adoption, like, even things like plastic surgery adoption, like, they're just they're living in the future. Um, like 5G adoption as well. If the they were the first country to have that, they're yeah, they're in the future. Yeah. What did you learn by spending time with the the guys that hashed? Um, what did I learn? Uh, or like, did it make you change your mind on like like just from a crypto like venture lens? Did it make you like think differently about things? Did, uh, I mean, the thing I came away with is like a ton of respect for hashed. Uh. Like, you know, you think about what they've been able to do in Korea. There aren't really any analogies in places like Japan. Like, Japan, like, desperately needs someone like Hash to kind of, like, plant the flag, have a lot of incentives. And, you know, Hash got to where they are today, you know, basically from prop capital. Uh, and they've since raised, you know, like, regular venture funds. And they're raising them from, like, you know, just, like, very legitimate Korean institutions. And they're and they're really helping bring the asset class to that country, um, especially in the wake of things like Luna. So, like, just tons of respect for them. Uh, but in terms of, like, things I've been thinking differently on, um, I think it's, like, just, like, better reasoned understanding of things like Web3 Gaming and how different it looks in Asia than the U.S. Um, and I would probably give... 
Asia, like just Asia has more users of these things. They're less, they're more acclimated to crypto. Like that's going to be like the initial user base of these games. Pretty, pretty convinced of that. Yeah. Are they spending time building things like in DeFi? Like are there the like Aves and Uniswaps and compounds of, of, of Korea and Japan? No, I mean, like DeFi is is kind of uh, like the incumbents that are in place today are very unlikely to be unseated by local players. Unless like things take a very different turn with Web3 Gaming where it's not Uniswap on the game chain. It's like, you know, something else that could happen. But uh, it doesn't seem like it's it's like it's much easier to reason through building a Web3 Gaming startup versus trying to go off and compete with Uniswap. Like you're just going to have that adverse selection of people not wanting to go and charge off in that direction. One thing that you mentioned, Vance, was that there was a lot more. It's seeming kind of like app focus from some of the people that you were speaking to in in Korea and Japan. And I do think maybe this is just my perception because of what I've been digging into lately. But I do feel like a lot of the uh, the traction that you're seeing here in the U.S. is very infrastructure sort of based projects like Eigenlayer or rollups and and things of that nature. So. Is that, a, is that a fair comparison that people over in Asia are a little bit more focused on apps and actual things that you can do with crypto as opposed to the heavy infrastructure focus that you see over here in the States a little bit? Yeah, I think the West is always leading in terms of infrastructure, but I'm not sure how important that is anymore in an age where we have like abundant block space for probably like the next five or 10 years of consumer applications. Um, and just like Asia has more of a background in consumer applications to start with. So, you know, they have really big gaming companies. They have really big messaging companies. They have really big consumer apps that they built. But, you know, like they haven't really kind of built the infrastructure before. And I think they just feel more comfortable building consumer apps generally. And I, I think that puts them in a pretty good position going forward. Um, the other stuff I'll say is like with Web3 Gaming, um, the importance of like a very Lindy economy that's bootstrapped and signaled by institutional investors versus like there's going to be thousands of games to launch in the next few years. That's something that's starting to come into focus for me in terms of like just the economies of the game really need to be backed by high signal folks and and you know a lot of money needs to be put into them to to make them even just like seem legitimate. Um, and it seems like that's what a lot of the you know. Asian gaming startups are looking to Western investors for is like put money into this, you know, buy and farm the land, like, you know, help us develop this economy. Um, it feels like, you know, that's what people like, you know, us and hash and, and other big venture firms are good at, but there aren't a ton of big venture firms in Asia, you know? And so like, they're always kind of missing that pillar of like how they go to market. Um, so, I mean, it's just good for like, you know, people who invest both across the U S and Asia, but there's definitely going to be a need for that type of persona in the market. But overall, really fun trip. Um, had a bunch of drinks with people, went out, you know, built some relationship. And like, you're such a relationship business that, you know, you kind of forget that if you sit behind a screen all day, you definitely get stale and you do need to get out there. A lot of trips planned to, you know, places like India and places like Africa for this, this year and excited to see kind of what else is being built in, in crypto globally. Yeah. So maybe on that theme, just maybe kind of the theme of this podcast is, uh, you know, we talked at the very tail end of, of last week about there for the first time, at least in my experience in crypto, it's seeming like the U.S. actually has a chance of, you know, 
of losing this. And it does seem like a lot of activity is moving out. And that's primarily due to regulation. So it was kind of funny to watch. There were two kind of regulatory updates this week, and they stood in really stark contrast to one another. So there was the Gary Gensler testimony this week, which I'm a little hesitant to get super deep into. I think a lot of people probably followed that and have kind of their strong conclusions about it. But I do just want to get your guys uh, sort of brief thoughts on that. And then I want to actually spend a little bit more time talking about, I don't even know how, Mika, um, Markets in Crypto, the regulation that just got passed by the EU Parliament, which feels really promising to me, actually. And it's not very it's not very often that you see the EU leading the US in regulation, especially when it comes to something like tech. So for me, I just really, I felt like it was a, a very stark contrast. But maybe before we get into that, I'd love to just get kind of a high level on what you guys all thought about uh, Gensler's testimony. Yeah, um, I, I think unfortunately, you know, it, it's all kind of a performative um, expose of perspectives. Um, you know, there's never going to be any decisions that are made in public forum like that. There's never going to really be any like changes of mind in a public forum like that. I think it was very clear that there is a lot of disinterest in the way that things have been going. Uh, regulation by enforcement action has not been successful. Um, you know, one of the questions that I, I think would have been, um, you know, great to ask would have been, and it was sort of asked in an indirect way is, um, you know, if if the rules today are sufficient for protecting um, U.S. consumers, U.S. investors, then then why did we have two of the largest um, explosions in the industry in the last year? Um, you know, d don't we think things need to likely change? Um, so I, I do think that, you know, there's a lot of there are a lot of emotions, frankly, in that um, in that chamber. Um, but uh, it, all of the work that goes into policymaking, all of the work that goes into decisions and and um, things that actually effectuate the industry happen behind closed doors with um, you know people who aren't necessarily the ones making those comments. Um, it's the staffers, it's the policymakers, it's the people behind the scenes. Um, so that's really what I'm looking forward to is to see what some of the actions are coming out of these types of discussions. There's there's also another um, uh, a discussion uh, on the Hill, uh, specifically talking about stablecoins. Um, you know, it'd be great to see some sensible regulation about stablecoins come out of that. Um, and yeah, Mike, you're 100% correct. All of this runs directly in the face of what uh, at least was, uh, I, I believe, got the, the vote today. It needs to be verified by EU members, but, but Mika is moving forward. And while it's, you know, probably not perfect, uh, it, it at least is good in a lot of ways of at least defining the rule set that people within the EU will be able to operate under. The, the, like the regulations in Asia aren't perfect either. Like the 8K, uh, SFC, which is their version of the SEC was like, yeah, all the DeFi projects are under our regulations too. You need to come in and register so like, you know, the, it's positive that they're opening crypto back up again, but, you know, they don't have like this nuanced understanding that uh, is just like, far, by and large, just way better than the US. Um, this is not the case. Japan is great as well, but the Japanese government moves extremely slowly. Um, honestly, I think Korea is probably the country that's, again, living the most in the future with regards to regulations. Um, <laughs> they have no tax on, on uh, crypto trading. They have uh, security token legislation that's coming into view. They have uh, an, a separate carve out for utility tokens. Um, 
but like again it's not perfect the the one that i'm i'm pretty interested in that i don't know enough about is the uk landscape i've heard it's just like a basic transparency and disclosure regime um but it's you know i take notice of coinbase going out to the uk you know relative to the amount of users they have there that's a lot of time to be investing in a place like that so nothing's perfect um and i think the fact that you can have senators grilling you know, regulators in the U.S. is is also not something that you have in, you know, frankly, any of those countries. So it's just cool to see it play out. And there's always going to be ups and downs. And at the end of the day, the courts are going to need to confirm a lot of this or at least confirm regulators power or not power to do things. Um, but there's a lot of people who've like, you know, said their piece on the Gary Gensler hearing, like bashing him has become fashionable. Like, I don't know. I don't think I have a whole lot of to add to that. The, the thing that I, I maybe want to double click a little bit into is Mika itself. <clears throat> and, yeah. you know, th yeah. this is uh, um, uh, this is for the EU. So to Vance's point, that's, that's a good clarification. It's not for the UK. Um, it also does not specifically, Mika itself doesn't include um, something that was also passed, which is the travel rule. Uh, maybe it's called the TRM, I believe, um, or, or TRC, but basically it's the UK, or sorry, the EU's equivalent of the travel rule with FATF, um, which puts, um, it, you can think of it in terms of, okay, when do centralized providers need to provide the government with information on certain transactions that are happening from centralized service providers, um, uh, crypto asset service providers, SASPs, uh, as they're called in the EU, um, fortunately, one of those was not a peer-to-peer -peer transaction, but if it was from one SASP to another SASP or into or out of a SASP, um, you know, there are going to be new rules, uh, uh, pertaining to how those centralized providers are going to need to report those transactions to the government as they currently do right now. So if you move $10,000 or more in the United States, um, that is, uh, something that has to get filed literally with the FBI. Um, and so there are going to be controls around that, um, you know, for better or for not, um, one of the, one of the initial models that they were considering was all peer-to-peer -peer transactions or just having a self-custodied, uh, ledger, um, or, or a self-custodied wallet with assets on it completely outlawed. Um, so this is, this is definitely a good outcome. It's not a great outcome. Um, Mika itself, uh, also specifically carves out both DeFi and NFTs from being as part of the the coverage uh, of this this rule set, um, and it does put a lot of focus onto what can be considered a stablecoin, and the rules around stablecoins, stablecoin issuers, the amount of assets backing these stablecoins. Um, that's what a lot of the focus seems to be. Um, so uh, once again, you know, let's not let. Um, good be the enemy of great or whatever that phrase is um I, i'd much rather have something positive that we can move forward with uh, in an area as big as the eu where a lot of this activity already was originating from um uk i'm sure will follow suit in in certain ways um maybe differences in others but uh positive uh, trajectory in the face of what yeah. seems to be negative trajectory in the us i thought two of the most interesting things from Mika were um so Within Mika, they introduced three subcategories for crypto assets. There's asset reference tokens. There's what's the second one? E-money e tokens, I think it was. And then and then the third bucket is actually utility tokens. Um, and that was interesting to see because that's the 
European Parliament directly saying that there is now some, that some of these tokens do have utility on chain. That's them saying that some of these things have utility. And then the, the other interesting thing was uh, for a crypto project to launch in the EU, it needs to have certain things that happen. It like has to be a legal entity, has to register with the EU. They have to submit their white paper and get approval. And then they also have to take approval for stable coins, which in my mind is like the EU basically putting their stamp of being like these stable coin things. Okay, we we see the value here. Uh, and if you're a crypto project, like you need to take these these stable coin things. Um, and I think it also puts uh, USDC under the European Banking Authority, which is uh, like a big step forward for them. So. Yep. At the same time, another thing that happened today, um, and I'm going to butcher the name, uh, Societe Generale, um, the the bank in, yeah. in uh, I believe, Switzerland, launched the digital euro on Ethereum today or announced the the, the launch of it. Um, so, you know, the, you're already starting to see some of the movements that is, in the direction. That is something that in a bull market, that is like, you know, watch your guru, 20,000 likes, like 500 Twitter people being like, European biggest bank launches stable. Nobody's talking about that. That's I didn't even know that. Yeah, I don't know if it's the biggest bank in Europe. It, it is a bank in Europe putting yeah, yeah, yeah. bank issued coins on Ethereum. Um, so yeah, like people are already taking this uh, vote, and it once again, I don't, I, I don't know the process. I know it has to get approved by EU Parliament, but June, I believe, uh, January twenty twenty four is when the stablecoin section will become valid. And then uh, around June 2024, or maybe maybe it was June and by the end of 2024 for the for the two different sections. But 2024, all of this becomes legitimate and active. Um, and the other thing, uh, you know, that was in there is um, when launching a token project or a project that has a token, one of the things that I think is, is um, just a no-brainer in terms of any regulation is when you file the the white paper when you or publish the white paper you also have to publish a list of all the different holders of the token and this is exactly something that happens with the s1 process of going public in the united states who owns what and then every single time that someone who's an insider or declared to be an insider makes a transaction either buying or selling those securities you have to file with the sec i, I don't think we need an onerous process like that but actually being able to track who has ownership? Where is that ownership? How does that ownership trend? Is the team selling all their tokens or investors selling all their tokens? Like th these are things that will help with the clarity and understanding of, of what is backstopping these token networks. Um, and I just think a really important improvement into, into the transparency of these ecosystems. Yeah. It feels like this was a relatively good spirited way to tackle a, a holistic framework for crypto. And the other thing that we haven't really talked about is now, you know, there are 27, I believe, member states in the European Union. Now you basically have to register in one of those member states and then you get the same treatment across all of those different member states, which is so different from how it works in the United States. Just look at the bit license, for instance, in New York for an example of that. I got a question for you guys. So all this is very promising. This is definitely a big step forward in the right direction for Europe. Would you recommend portfolio companies, especially early stage portfolio companies, to go be domiciled out of Europe? Depends what they're doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If it's, if, if they have something that's truly permissionless that you can launch and never have to maintain again, I think you're fine no matter what jurisdiction that you're in. And I think mm -hmm. that's ultimately what people should be aiming for. Unfortunately, the process of like starting a centralized company 
to gradually decentralizing a protocol to it being totally permissionless, usually that takes a few years. I still think the U.S. is is probably the best shot because, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're not just considering the regulatory clarity or lack of clarity. You're considering the capital market formation that you have around you. You're considering the local talent for hiring into your company. There's like a bevy of factors that you have to consider. Um, but there's no doubt that the needle is moving more and more towards probably not Asia because there frankly isn't, you know, regulatory clarity there either. But Europe is becoming this like, potential second banana that's you know potentially equal with the u.s going forward um and that's that's crazy to me um you know I, yeah that's a what intergalactic bag fumble by the u.s it's it's so sad to see that i agree what about the would you consider the labor practices and rules that europe has for instance in somewhere like germany it's basically almost impossible to fire someone or something like that does that factor in how you think about uh, operating a startup at all? That's more of like a, a larger stage company question. Um, mm -hmm. Startup, I think you have the benefit of the doubt just because you're hiring fewer people. So you better make those hires count. But um, yeah, like you can even see it from Coinbase, like what they're doing. They're launching a international derivatives exchange based out of Bermuda, obviously, but targeting probably mostly Europe and Asia. Um and so even from a user perspective, the the aperture is opening just beyond the U.S. Yeah. Let's talk about the Coinbase news because this felt really significant to me. So pretty pretty short TLDR, but basically Coinbase has been granted a license to operate in the offshore haven of Bermuda, and it's seeking to diversify its business outside of the United States. So I guess in theory, what this would be is some sort of offshore derivative exchange vis-a-vis -vis FTX back in the day or Deribit or something like that. And now this is where I'm kind of, you know, Coinbase hasn't said this, but I'm paraphrasing. I would guess this is them actually taking seriously the idea that the growth in growth in the United States is going to be limited and maybe hedging the risk that the U.S. Uh, administration is just ultimately super unfriendly to crypto. What do you guys think about this? I, I think you could also see this as an opportunistic. There, it's either there's two. I think there's two camps here. The, the one camp is this is them hedging their bets and there's like this SEC Gensler war on crypto in the US and they need to hedge. And you saw, I think Brian posted a, a picture on Twitter with someone in the UK and, you know, they tweeted out that they're, you know, doing yeah, international expansion. And then like same week they do this Bermuda thing. And like, this is them kind of like hedging basically the US. The other take on this is that they see a massive market opportunity. Uh, the, the regulators are coming down on, on, uh, on Binance pretty strong. And, um, yeah, I mean, if, if Binance were, were to disappear, there's really no good options to to trade perps and to trade derivatives right now. You, you're kind of going to like places where liquidity sucks or like places that are like pretty shady right now or places that are like you could go on chain, but there's a lot of issues with on chain. And uh, this could be them saying like, look, at, at some point, crypto is going to need like a very regulated, very like stable uh derivatives and per and, per and perps market and something that like big institutions trust for this stuff and maybe they can fill that hole so uh, so 100 percent agree with you know uh, also keep in mind the second largest uh competitor to binance just blew itself up about five months ago and that was servicing derivatives markets in international uh jurisdictions non-us jurisdictions so I I think it's more a move that also this isn't something that just happens overnight. Like, oh, we applied and got it and like, boom, it's happening. The other thing too is that they also said that they could launch the product as soon as next week, which means that they've been building this product for a long time. 
Uh, and this yeah. is probably something that stems out of a market opportunity, less more recent news, less more regulatory news. Um, I think the bigger thing that's more regulatory news or just like kind of the winds of, of politics going right now is their visit to the UK. And, uh, you know, having a bit of an inside look as to how usual PR works, the the two narratives coming out of there is Brian um, basically saying moving Coinbase to a non-US jurisdiction is not out of the question. You know, that is a that is a seeding of the thought of, well, what if we made Coinbase a, 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 a UK company going forward and our headquarters is based in the UK? Um, you know, who's our regulator at that point? Um, what are the regulations that we have to abide by at that point? Um, I, I think that has to do more with the political wins, less the the derivatives product. They just happen to coincide in the same week. I, I don't think Coinbase is leaving the US. It just like the vast majority of their business is retail flow on Coinbase.com. So, you know, like all within the context of like, they're probably building this straw man argument for, hey, we're going to leave. And hey, we have other parts of our business too. Um, but overall, I, I just don't see them leaving the US. And we'll see what happens with this Wallace notice. But my guess is that they're going to fight that pretty much tooth and nail. Same with Bittrex. And those cases are going to take years. Like you're probably looking at, you know, at the end of the day when that is resolved either way, it's probably someone who isn't Gary Gensler that's at the SEC. Like it's it's just going to take so long. Um, not saying anything about him leaving or anything like that near term. But uh, yeah, they're starting to build the straw man for, you know, we can go elsewhere. We'll see how real that is in time. But Certainly, you know, for members of Congress, when they hear this, you know, they probably don't read too much beyond like the headlines. That's just my guess. They have a lot of stuff that they're doing. Um, this probably resonates with them. Um, and I think there still is this lack of international venue for people to trade in the wake of FTX's collapse, per Michael's point. It would be great if it was them. Like, that's one of the things that I've been looking for in terms of my like bear market checklist, like on chain activity. Like, I would say that that's pretty much back. Like, we still need to get more NFT users, more game users, more DeFi users, et cetera. But, like, we're back. Um, the other one is just, like, the rebuilding of the credit in the exchange market. Right now, the credit market is still a zero. Like, dollar lending has is, is gone away. But what that's been replaced by are these perps and on-chain venues. But um, having someone as legit as Coinbase with the ability to attract market makers, like, that's kind of what you need for this next run to start taking shape. So just, just to double click one more time, <clears throat> moving outside the U.S. really doesn't have any effect on U.S. customers. It means that your like, contracts that you signed switch from uh, Coinbase Incorporated uh, U.S. to like Coinbase Global LTD. And you know the headquarters of the company switches from someplace in San Francisco to someplace in London. And you know the taxes and and you know maybe the the dollar denomination turns into a pound denomination, but you can switch it back to dollars if you want. Like nothing really tangibly happens to all the existing U.S. customers. It's just they're a, a U.K. company serving U.S. customers hypothetically. Um, and so I I think you know there is a serious potential for them to leave. What would that do to U.S. customers? Basically nothing. What would that look like to U.S. Uh, capital markets, I think they'd still trade on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, like, I, I don't think tangibly that much changes if they move, other than having more favorable regulatory um, dealings. I'm not. I would push back on on some of these uh, on some of this. I I don't personally think like zooming. Forget the growth opportunity over the next like two or three years. I don't think 
the future for how crypto is traded is these offshores, un un offshore unregulated venues. I just, I just don't. I think there's a pretty clear future for me. If I had to bet on a future, I would say there's going to be large, heavily regulated exchanges based in probably the major jurisdictions like the US. There'll probably be one in Asia somewhere like Japan or South Korea or something like that. And maybe an EU one, but I just, I don't see, I don't see it as being a good move for Coinbase to kind of try to chase the market that finance is dominating right now, because I, I don't even know how that would work as being a, a public company in the US. I definitely don't think you would see an offshore unregulated exchange be able to go public. Coinbase is already public. So I don't know what that looks like in terms of, of risk, but I can't imagine that their investor base would actually love that, even if it starts printing money for them, because the risk is just way too high. FTX is in everyone's memory. I, I just, but, I, I'm in advances. I don't think they're going to do it, but I don't think it's a smart move, even if they, even if they did. This. I mean, we're also talking about sort of semantics here. You know, most companies like the way that most companies function is you have a U.S. entity and then you have a U.K. entity. All the business that happens in the rest of the world, whether or not you're selling, you know, cloud storage, you're allowing people to trade on your platform or you're selling advertising. All of the all of the activity, the business activity that happens outside of the United States literally flows through Ireland, the UK, whatever international entity you have set up. All the business activity that happens inside the US happens with the US Inc. Delaware C Corporation just about every single time. <clears throat> what they're talking about doing is a, a fundamental shift of just saying, okay, which one's headquarters, which one's secondary. And you have this intercompany agreement, which basically says all the revenue that happens in one entity happens there and then you flow it back to headquarters like that it, it's like a semantic shift in a lot of ways but just to, to double click into what you were saying mike <clears throat> i i think all they're doing is they're saying listen we want to get regulated so we are the regulated opportunity internationally where there are no regulated opportunities to trade derivatives internationally it, it doesn't limit them from saying hey eventually if there's an opportunity for us to be a regulated derivative exchange for us customers that we're going to go after it they already have said that. They have multiple broker dealers that haven't been activated by the SEC. They've been in process with the CFTC to make those types of uh, trading operations available. I don't think it limits them into perpetuity. I think this is just, you know, a new business line that they haven't been able to access previously. Yeah, this this would be regulated, just be serving the the countries that are outside the US that Binance serves right now. Like all of Binance is exactly. France, France, like all those venues are regulated as well. So don't want to cast too much, you know. Of judgment on like places like finance because they are regulated in most of these countries in the world right and That's frankly so was ftx but right hey everyone exciting announcement here from the blockworks podcast network we are hiring two podcast hosts to build a show with us called lightspeed tldr of lightspeed is that it is a show for builders tinkerers and lovers of technology it's a callback to the heyday of silicon valley where great tech was built in garages, not in corporate fortresses, and was truly the Wild West. Lightspeed is an exploration of crypto from the perspective of a builder and an engineer who's designing for scale and is interested in onboarding the next billion users into crypto. If this show sounds exciting to you, you have a background in podcast hosting or content creation, go to the careers page of Blockworks. That's blockworks.co slash careers. I've also linked it in the show notes here. You can just click there. It'll take you right to the page. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm Mike. Ippolito underscore. You can just slide right into my DMs and we'll set up some time to talk. Would love to hear from you. We are super, super excited about this show. Speaking of FTX, I'd love to get your guys' take on this idea that they might 
restart. Um, and I guess I, I saw Bloomberg reported that it might there might be a possible bid in from Tribe Capital. So this all this all happened when um, Andrew Dietrich, who's an attorney with FTX, uh, and uh, Sullivan Cromwell told the U.S. bankruptcy judge that the company might try to raise money uh, and basically make creditors whole through a restart on the exchange. I think this comes off the back of the news that they found some $7.3 billion worth of assets. I haven't seen what those assets are. The last time I looked at the the balance sheet of FTX, I wasn't super impressed with what was on there, but I would assume if this is um, if this is the recovery team saying this, then it's probably pretty real. And they basically floated this idea that, um, his name I'm blanking on, the uh, John J. Ray uh, is basically going to be thinking about this in, in Q2. So sometime over the next three months, he's going to be assessing that idea. And yeah, Bloomberg reported that Tribe um, is considering injecting, uh, basically leading a $250 million round, uh, of which 100 would come from themselves and their LPs. And I guess the last thing I'll say before I get your guys' opinion is they initially were an investor in FTX themselves. So I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on, do you think this is viable? Uh, do you think this is a good way to make creditors whole? And what do you think about Tribe leading this? Uh, I mean, first thing is the question on that, the amount of assets, like what are, what are different things marked at? I'm looking at Serum on CoinGecko that's still marked at like two, two and a half billion. So I think they own like 30 or 40% of that. Like that's obviously not real. Um, and to your point, like looking at the schedule of assets, it's like, it's not all like you could sell it into real us dollars and distribute it to people. So there, there is still a hole. Um, and the question is like, how do you kind of get people as close to whole as possible? letting this get drawn out by lawyers and trying to do a distribution like the the Voyager distribution was like the most straightforward thing ever it was just like take the crypto give it to people it's been like almost a year at this point and there's still no progress they're still charging outrageous amounts of legal fees like hundreds of millions of dollars are going to the wrong people and not to the actual creditors of the estate which is just like awful and so my general bias is that crypto people should always seek to figure things out between themselves and not involve regulators, bankers, or lawyers to the extent possible. Unfortunately, um, like I, I think the FTX, uh, you know, like getting the equity to be monetized, aka getting it to a higher market cap value where people are again using the exchange, it's generating profit, and you give people a share of it. It just depends, like, are people down to sign up for keeping their money on the platform and trading it on the platform for some exchange of the exchange fees or some, uh, you know, uh, pro rata of the exchange fees? I I don't know. I, I think, like, a couple of months ago, I would have said definitely yes, that's a possibility. When Coinbase is spinning up a, a licensed derivatives exchange, I think that just, like, makes the opportunity a little bit smaller. Um, at the end of the day, you also need somebody to run this. And so I think, like, having people, like, tribe uh who are a very legit firm um actually like lead the the effort to to get this spun back up it's certainly pretty positive um and i would definitely put you know our support you know financial or otherwise you know behind something like this just because i think it's a good for the creditors but b it's probably a pretty big business opportunity if done correctly but how do you lock people up onto the exchange and get them to stay there and use it that's still the question that like Voyager is still trying to sell their platform. It's like, okay, who wants to be a Voyager customer in the year of 2023? Probably not that many people. Like that's kind of always where With you our event, you would, you would invest in this FTX. To, why, why is that something that you would allocate capital towards? I mean, like you're getting it at a 99% discount. 
to its $34 billion valuation back in the day. And maybe that was a silly valuation and it was like SBF effect, but the exchange was generating, I guess you kind of need to dig into like whether the actual profit and revenue numbers were also fraudulent. Cause like, that's kind of the Delta of what we don't have at the moment is like, how big would this, was, would this exchange have been if it was run as a legitimate exchange? Was right. Were Al- those revenue numbers real that we saw? Yeah, yeah. Right. The death, the death spiral is like: was Alameda all the volume, and did Alameda have capital because they stole from FTX customers? If not, you know, then this isn't legit. But you do need the the layer of data, and and like you know, would we put our support behind something like this? Maybe. Who, and, who in their right mind would ever use FTX again? Well, a lot of people like they have yeah. like a very you know expansive licensed exchange, even though it was run illegally. You know, you know what would help, Jason, is if a really big backer came in with a gigantic balance sheet and put their name behind it. That would that would help. That would really help. The, yeah. The other the other thing that I think is, <clears throat> I mean, it's going to take a long time to play out. I, I I don't know if you guys have been following this uh, um, celebrity uh, promotion uh, class action lawsuit that's going on for anybody that supported um, or promoted FTX. Um, I read a little bit into this. It's actually a really interesting one where the claim is that every that all of the people that supported uh, FTX, so Shaquille O'Neal, Larry David, uh, coincidentally not Taylor Swift because she asked the one T-Swift question. Yeah, she was um, diligent. Oh, happened. I I think that something that never happened. Apparently, it's it's been discussed. Apparently, it's been discovered in emails um, that they're using in the case. Adam Moskowitz is the lawyer who's putting together the class action lawsuit. Also, was the lawyer who did the one point four billion dollars of recovery um, from the from the Surfside um, uh, building collapse uh, a couple of years ago. Um, <clears throat> but he he's put together this class action lawsuit, effectively saying that every single account represented an unregistered security because every single account when you signed up for FTX was an interest-bearing account, um, which, uh, according to some of the uh, perspectives of, like, I think, um, uh, whatever the SEC, I, th- I know New Jersey has said that, um, you know, those interest-bearing accounts are, are securities. They prevented Coinbase from creating that because it was an unregistered security offering. But every single person who had an account at FTX was also given an unregistered security as they signed up because everyone was an interest-bearing account. Um, and so it becomes a question and, you know, whether or not, you know, you get into the legal semantics, I don't, I don't think it really matters for this point, but what really becomes a question is like, what do you actually retain if you start FTX again? If there's no interest-bearing account, if you have to trade certain assets, if you don't have, you know, the market-making capabilities that Alameda probably provided, um, if you don't have the ability to like launch, I mean, they were doing such wild west things of like launching coinbase as a synthetic asset before the coinbase ipo even happened um you know like that type of stuff would never be able to fly in what you know will become a regulated um institution in whatever way shape or form it, it manifests going forward also you know there there's a five billion dollar class action lawsuit on the table here uh for for these celebrities who are going to recoup if if there is any money that happens they're going to go back to the estate and say what the heck you know I, I I supported this, so like there there's just a lot of red tape legally that has to get sorted out on this. Um, it it almost feels a little bit premature to to want to respin and reskin uh, FTX, um, just because we don't even know where like the end of this road leads on just like discovering the bottom. 
Yeah. I think the, the, I mean, you guys might know better than me, but I think that the reason why you might want to buy FTX and restart it is there still is, you know, to my knowledge, I don't know if it's the industry leading, you know, risk management, you know, risk engine that they said it was, but there definitely is still tech and connectivity that was built in. And there definitely are still lots of accounts that if you assured them that there was different management and a large balance sheet behind them, then they might stick around with FTX because these sorts of accounts are famously sticky. So I guess this would make sense for someone that has a really large balance sheet, doesn't have necessarily the in-house competency to build a crypto exchange, but wants a piece of crypto. So I don't have my tinfoil hat because I'm at the office, but if I did have my tinfoil hat, I would put it on and I would make a little prediction that a bank ends up buying FTX. I bet that FTX ends up in the within is a nice little piece of crypto property that uh, maybe like a Jamie Dimon type figure ends up with his hands on. No, dangerous game you're playing, my friend. <laughs> Too regulated. Also, Vance, I think you're on mute. You're on mute, Vance. <laughs> Vance is staying. I don't want to talk. <laughs> doesn't want to talk. Yeah, far far too regulated. Me now. Yeah, I yeah. can hear you now, bro. <laughs> Every week, a different podcasting software. Every week, <laughs> you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks. You haven't been here for last week. Fair enough. When I return to a different podcasting software. All right. So, what are you? What are your thoughts on that? Is that too far out there? I think that's too far out there. I I I think. Uh, I mean, it's cool that Tribe is is trying to do this, and it's cool that they also have the connection of being, you know, initial investors in FTX as well. So I think there's kind of like a little bit of like making things right, but um, there's a good chance that when you enter the exchange landscape, by the time this gets respun, it's significantly more competitive than it was in the past. Like, Binance is now seemingly like, you know, like centered in Dubai. Um, and not leaving and, and, you know, figuring out that that's like a better path for them. Coinbase is launching there. There isn't as room, as much room for FTX as there used to be. The decentralized venues are starting to take off as well. Um, so TBD, I also don't know what is real about that business or what is fake. Like, do they really have an industry leading risk engine? Cause it didn't really seem like it towards the end. Didn't No. but I do, um, Look, it's uh, I could be totally wrong about that, and uh, that I would have to add some egg on my face. But I, I do think, I do think definitely at least J.P. Morgan. I kind of, I don't know how real these are, but I heard rumors that they were looking at, you know, crypto exchanges. And if I were them, this would be a time to pick up something on the cheap that at one point had a great brand and a bunch of customers. So they should buy back. All right, I've never had it. Literally, <laughs> I mean, did they ever write a line of code? Yeah. I mean, the reason the reason that Mike could be right here is like you do see, um, like for, uh, there was a Citadel guy at uh at Blockworks Beers. We hosted this thing Blockworks Beers last night, and there was a Citadel guy there, and he's on the crypto team. And uh, you know, the Citadel Charles Schwab and I think it was Fidelity came together, and they kind of quietly created this crypto exchange called EDX. But like, he, I mean, he was telling me it's full steam ahead over there with with the exchange. And then you have um. You know, NASDAQ is doing a lot in the crypto exchange space. So, like, I do think that these traditional players want to be primed to capture the crypto exchange market uh, when the bull market comes back. I'd run it out of time, though. Like, you hear about these things, and then, like, a, a year later, you're like, what happened to that? And then it's like, oh, yeah, that was shut down. I'm trying to make it so that Mike Why? has less egg on his face. 
you know. I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, I got standing up your wall, but yeah. I, I listen. I, I no one should ever be faulted for tinfoil hat conspiracy theories. Um, appreciate you know, that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a conspiracy theorist, and then it rained. So <laughs> I'm waiting for I'm waiting for my T-shirt, Mike. <laughs> I actually have found myself. I was looking for that online. I thought that was a pretty funny T-shirt. Um, you guys want to talk? There's this was kind of a little bit of a wonky story, but I think it is. I think it is pretty cool. So Flashbots launched their MEV Share product today. So MEV Share is um it's basically a way to return MEV to to users so like the one of the big the big things that's happening right now in in mev is in at least the way it works in ethereum today the vast majority of mev flows to um validators and there are some good reasons for that happening um it's kind of like the security budget for the network but overall the mev supply chain is getting much longer and much more complex and i think participants are kind of waking up to the idea that honestly the the people that the generators of MEV are actually users and users are kind of getting raked over the coals right now. And the big trend in MEV service providers is basically finding ways to return MEV to those users. And the the way that they're doing it is kind of a cool, a cool mechanism where basically I don't want to get like too too deep into the weeds of how it actually works, but basically user privacy plays a super key role. So they're introducing a new set of actors that are executors it almost you almost think of it as kind of like an alternative sort of private mempool and you as a user can choose to reveal uh, certain parts of your transactions and if you do um, you'll basically get compensated for revealing that for uh, from these actors calls executors they send that to a matchmaker which is just a fancy new word for the person who's bundling um, these new transactions and then they get routed down the rest of the chain and then you as a user uh, can actually get compensated for the MEV that you're generating. So Flashbots isn't the only one uh, to do this. There's also Rook has a solution out there and same with Block Native, Matt Cutler's firm. So pretty cool. Um, definitely an interesting, I think it's a, a step in the right direction for the way MEV works on Ethereum today. Mike, it seems like there are two solutions to MEV or like two ways to attack the MEV problem right now. There's the first bucket is like trying to decrease the amount of MEV in the system. Um, and then the second is like the, uh, just kind of understanding that MEV will exist. And so trying to fl get MEV back to the users as, as much as possible, which kind of like, first off, is that, is that right? And then second is like, which bucket do you think is a better solution there? Yeah, that is right. And this is pretty fiercely debated. I would say it's kind of a philosophical battle, but I would say the maximizing MEV, but then redistributing it is probably winning. If you want the the sort of steel man for the opposite side, there's actually a, a pretty thought-provoking piece written by a guy named Ari Jules. Ari Jules was the PhD advisor to Phil Dian, actually, who is one of the the co-founders at Flashbots. And he basically made this analogy where, you know, it's it's hyperbolic in nature, but it paints an evocative picture. It's like the way that crime happens in New York right now is not very efficient. So basically what we should do as a city is just systematize burglaries, muggings, etc. And then we should take basically a tax on those burglaries and muggings and redistribute it to the victims. And to be honest, I think that's a pretty fair way. Um, that's a pretty fair depiction for how MEV happens today. The problem is MEV is so thorny that as soon as you start to dive into these things of like fair ordering, you know, then 
you're you're basically just favoring a different set of actors, right? So first come first come first serve sounds like that would be a more fair system, but then you realize that basically all you're doing is incentivizing actors to be as close as possible to you know the sequencer if you're on a, a layer two or the builder or validator on the layer one, and then it just becomes a latency game, and that's not very fair either because it favors deep pocketed actors, but it also causes geographic concentration, and that's not good for the health of the network. So there's really not, you know, there's no perfect way to do this, I don't think. And Flashbots, if you if you sort of look at the history of everything they've built, they're they're basically their goal as a as a company is just to kind of shine light on this problem and then to to use mechanism design to basically create a whole bunch of like small pieces that can be used to to solve these problems. So MEV Boost, which is the, they they actually started with MEV Geth. Um, which is back when Ethereum actually had mining and they kind of originally solved the problem of those uh, gas auctions, um, those PGAs. And then after in in uh, in when we did, uh, sorry, the merge and transition to proof of stake, that transition to relay boost and that or MEV boost. And that's why they have all these uh, relay auctions. So that the 90, like still there are big actors in involved in the validator space and the builder space. So that uh, really small actors like validators have the same uh, right to compete basically in MEV as the large ones. And this is just another tool in the, you know, that they've introduced. And this probably goes beyond the, the bounds of this podcast, but a lot of this fits into this gigantic solution that they have called Suave. And Suave is probably the most audacious project in all of crypto right now. I, would say. I know that's a big, you know, that's a tall statement to make, but the the scope of what they're trying to do is just so so massive um it's super interesting i totally agree that you can eliminate i think there's some that you can't there's also many different types of mev so like what are what's an example of mev that you could eliminate eth usdc sandwich attacks i think that's pretty easy to eliminate you just have someone you have a market maker quote closer to the actual price on an exchange instead of letting it go through uniswap like i think that's able to be eliminated versus like redistributing the value from that transaction. Like you could probably do both, but I think the better outcome for users is that you just frankly have a better price. Um, what's a what's some type of MEV that probably couldn't be eliminated? I don't know if anybody saw people trading the Pepe uh, shitcoin on Uniswap yesterday. Jared, Jared from Subway. This like insane degenerate activity, like you know, a coin that was launched 15 minutes ago, pumping to like hundreds of millions of dollars of market cap. There isn't an efficient market for that on a centralized exchange. On a centralized exchange, no market maker in their right mind would quote you on anything regarding that price. And so that's always going to go through Uniswap. That model is probably better to just redistribute that MEV and share with the user because Jared from Sunway was absolutely eating yesterday. He was cleaning up on just basically retail fish, you know, bidding this this coin up and down. So like, I think that's probably like a better solution for redistributing. And then you have things like NFT MEV, like all the gas auctions that happen for the initial bid uh, or initial whitelist, you know, all the secondary trading that's super inefficient. Like you could kind of probably go either way with enough price discovery, but like MEV is not just one thing. It's certainly concentrated in, you know, the the, the sandwich attacks right now of like the long tail uh, coins. But I don't know, it, like I think there's going to be a variety of approaches that work. Um yeah, and, and I think another one is like sharing it with the wallets versus the users. Right. That's the wallets are the sleeping giant. 
of MEV. I, I, and I was going to say, we, we haven't even touched the biggest, I think, solution to MEV for the bulk of where MEV is originating from, which is auctioning off the order flow to something else that doesn't yeah. flow through an AMM. We haven't really seen that done yet. Uh, I don't think at all, definitely not at scale. Um, and that that's a pretty dominant me- mechanism for trade or for exchange in traditional markets that could very easily live on-chain. And that would solve, I think, the bulk of uh, bucket one that Ans was talking about. They're not going to be able to touch the long tail. They're also probably not going to be able to touch the NFT transactions, gas auctions. <clears throat> but the the basic trading pairs that originate most of the volume on on Uniswap or the like, uh, those are going to be things that order flow auctions can definitely take the bulk of. Yeah. And to be clear, that's the direction that MEV is heading in. And Vance, to, just to your point about avoiding him, we should at one point get the founders of uh, of Osmosis on here, Dave Oha and, and and Sunny, they they are very much in this camp that you can avoid forms of MEV, and I think that is the the way of thinking in in Cosmos generally. And you can look at the ProtoRef module on Osmosis as a pretty cool example of this, where there's basically a protocol owned bot that does back running on the protocol, which is a pretty non harmful form of MEV, and then those tokens go to the treasury. The I'm sorry for for folks who've already listened to me use this analogy before, but um, the I think one of the design principles at on Ethereum is they tried to not make a whole bunch of changes. There is this idea in public policy where even a very small change that you make for the right reasons can have drastic effects that you just don't don't see when you initially make the decision. So the example was there's there's the, um, there were. At one point, the sort of rule about third strike offenders um, with and you basically got very long jail times if you committed a third strike with the idea being, look, everyone deserves a second chance. But if you're committing a felony for the third time, we want to we want to seriously disincentivize that. And they and they uh, drastically up jail time for for third time offenders. And they what they found out was that it didn't actually disincentivize uh, crime at all, but it did lead to drastic spikes in the murder rate of counties that impose these rules because people that were going to commit those crimes kept committing crimes anyway, but they knew that if it was their third time, they were going to go away for a long time. So something that might've just been a robbery became a murder as well. So that sort of thinking in public, like people who uh, are public policy planners are really aware of these sort of unintended effects. And that's why I think for very good reason, it takes Ethereum a really long time to come to protocol level decisions like PBS. And actually a lot of the thinking in uh, for some of like the MEV big brains is actually finding ways to not do things on protocol or test with less permanent measures uh, before making like a protocol level decision. So you're probably right, Vance. There are these examples of like, this is a really obvious, easy form of MEV to combat, but then you kind of end up playing this game of whack-a-mole and you can have a lot of unintended consequences that arise from that. Totally. I, one other thing I think is interesting is like, um, like sharing Mev. I mean, we said this before, but like sharing Mev with wallets or like with specific groups. Like, imagine the Pepe, you know, uh, coin yesterday was trading up, down, sideways. Like, imagine everyone who is buying or selling Pepe, like getting a specific share of that order flow. Like, you kind of have these Mev metagames that metastasize, and and sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. But right now, it's just Jared from Subway. Like that doesn't feel like that good of an option. I had to choose between all of them. Yeah. Do you guys think it's significant that that meme coin ended up going to like a hundred million as opposed to yes, 
hundred percent. That's like you know, you talk about spirits, and animal spirits are like just the vibe, the temperature of people, how they're feeling. And I haven't seen anything like that happen since Bonk in Solana. Yeah, and I think that was like at the beginning of this year. But like you saw this activity level, this price level where Mevbots turned back on, the gas got super crazy, the burn got super high, the yield got super high on ETH. Like, imagine when that happens at scale in a bull run in you know the next year or two. Like, that's gonna be pretty crazy for for ETH. Do Do you guys think that this next bull market? So it feels like every bull market is kind of more and more muted or less and less intense, basically. Um, what do you think this next bull market will 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 be like? similar like you know you've kind of decreased the intensity by another 25 percent relative to the last or the last one was actually an anomaly and that it was kind of muted and and this next one could be crazy do what do you what do you mean by what do you mean by intensity yeah. um are you talking about the overall multiple that the market cap goes up each time? yes that's right yeah exactly yeah, yeah i think that that's hard to say because it, so much of that market cap is just bitcoin and now eth like, I, I think a lot of it is what is going to happen with the long tail of assets? What's going to be the new dominant narrative of assets that are doing well versus not? Like, what's going to be the new market of opportunity that people are working on right now, but then in a year or two from now are, are doing the best relative? Um, and yeah, sure, there'll be a driving force of, you know, Bitcoin leading to the wealth effect of Ethereum, leading to the wealth effect of DeFi. And, you know, it, it definitely flows downhill. <clears throat> but I do think what will drive this next bull market is a new narrative and, and that's what we're searching for right now i i think it's going to be just like you know after the dot-com collapse like it was the highest quality names that recovered and did really well and it doesn't look a lot like the ico bubble like where you have thousands of new projects each of which could potentially be the winner like we know who the winners of DeFi are, are probably going to be and i think those are going to continue to do extremely well just because they'll be able to generate revenue and give it back to the holders. But you're not going to see like a hundred new Uniswap forks all of a sudden start competing for the top spot. That game is just mm -hmm. frankly over. Um, it depends on what the biggest asset is. If it's ETH, like that implies an entirely different thing about the intensity and scale of the bull market than if it's just Bitcoin. Like personally, we do, we do believe it will be ETH. And then it's just like games. Like games are the ones where you're going to see a lot of like open market competition for the number one spot. Because there's just like is not no dominant incumbent yet, and so like you think about it, it's gone from like ICOs, which were just like crazy bacchanal, free for all, whatever, to DeFi, which was a little bit like that, but like a slightly better reasons to now like flight to quality, you know, better reason thesis on the majors, and just like a free for all in the gaming space. And I think the reason why it might be more intense is just because gaming has more users than any other vertical could potentially have and so if you have like you know a community of like 2 million monthly active users that are actually on chain and doing things I don't know all bets are kind of off when you enter the actual user adoption phase and we just have not been there over the past three cycles yeah my my kind of thesis on what's next is is frankly games but what we had with DeFi was a large number large N of different applications like you know every single food coin ever uh people were just buying up those domains to be able to launch like a DeFi protocol underneath it with smart contracts that they ripped from from something else and i would say a small relative small number of n of users of those applications 
Whereas I think with gaming, it's going to be the complete reverse. You're going to have a small number N of games that are actually really fun to play with economies that work. But the end, because gaming is such a huge industry and the best games, which are the ones that are succeeding, are going to be the ones that can bridge the gap between, you know, web two, web three in, in a novel way. It's going to be a huge number of users. So it's going to be much fewer winners than the DeFi ecosystem was in, in 2019, 2020, but it'll be larger winners because of that. Any Anybody could have launched an ICO. It was, it was harder to build a DeFi project, but you could still copy paste. It's going to be extremely hard to build a competitive game if you see one in the market that's really working. It, it, it's going to take you years. And so that's what I think is nice about gaming is like, we're not going to see the fragmentation of this industry a thousand times over like we do with DeFi. Like if you're in market and winning, it's probably, you're probably going to stay winning for a long period of time. Um, so what, you know, what was intense, what was intense about DeFi is you literally had to be up 24 seven. What was intense about the ICO craze is, and Vance and I lived this while he was in Tokyo, we'd literally have a follow the sun model of like staying up on the news where it would be his daytime, it'd be my nighttime and then reverse. Like that type of model, I don't think is going to be the intensity or the reason for intensity for this next phase. It's going to be uh, just because of the development time for for successful games, it's going to be a lot more um, linear, but the, the outcomes are going to be that much bigger. So the massive wealth effect is going to happen again. It's just going to be in a different category. You guys kind of have red-pilled me a little bit on, on GameFi, actually, because I think the, the important question to ask in terms of what's going to be successful is what does the user journey look like for getting people involved in crypto? And the person who first kind of planted this little seed for me was Gabe Layden, I think his name is, um, with uh, his idea of like free to own NFTs. And the idea is actually people are first going to get an NFT and that's what's going to make them get their wallet. And that's what sort of facilitates their on-chain journey. And I think there's probably a really good case to be made the same thing with gaming, where people just, all you need is like one smash hit of a game, like a Candy Crush level game that's crypto native and that just Trojan horses people into the space. And then maybe you end up earning like a significant amount of assets. You're like, all right, it's a pain in the butt to like take these assets out of the crypto system. I'm going to use, for instance, DeFi um, as my as my sort of native finance. What, and, what you just said is oxymoronic as it currently stands because mm -hmm. you can't have a successful game in the way that Web3 gaming currently exists. We talked about this last time, or maybe it was the time before. Uh, like, wallet wall. You can't have you can't have millions of players concurrently if you also have a wallet that people have to use. So the the best answer to the ones that abstracted away, whether that's crypto native, web three native is up for debate. Like we we debate this internally all the time. But you know, like if it's web three native with a smaller number of N users, but still a lot larger than what DeFi saw. I think that's probably where it starts and then it expands into millions over time. But don't you think that with the, first of all, there's things like account abstraction that fix a lot of those problems with things like session keys and stuff like that. And you have wallet as a service. Like, don't you think that that's a solvable problem? It just hasn't happened yet. And I would imagine that, I mean, you guys would know so much better than me, right? But I would imagine app developers and game developers that, you know, when you launch a successful app, there's kind of like a native wallet that's a part of that and you can kind of just generate your own keys and you barely even know that you've just opened a new crypto wallet yeah i think recent history that's like as of like a month and a half ago i, I just had that experience for the first time actually at nft nyc of like interesting creating a cre i created a wallet on my phone from a from google chrome on my phone 
created it with like my Apple ID, minted an NFT on the page. So with it, within probably 30 seconds, I created a new wallet and minted and, and it was, and it was completely seamless. This is all, even L2s, frankly, like actually launched on ethel one last bull market. Like it, it, they built Ronin along the way, but you haven't been able to build a game. You haven't been able to onboard people. Like this is all brand new. So like it, it's yeah. going to be a lot easier to onboard people, but like still, if you're a game and you're like really bringing in a lot of people, the nice part is that there's nobody, there's nobody chasing you. Like nobody chased Axie when it launched because nobody was building games back then. And still games are going to take like two or three years to launch from today that are just like getting funded right now. So it's going to look a lot different and very positive that there won't be the same fragmentation. That's, that's a huge positive for this space. Oh, yeah. Vance, you missed this, but we did a review of the, the Uniswap mobile wallet as well. What'd and it might not, sorry. What'd you think? Um, uh, we had Miles, uh, who's the host of season three of Bell Curve and Jason, my friend, he, he actually downloaded it and tried to mess around with it and use it. And he had some, basically the TLDR was that they're kind of almost split in between having a super easy retail, never touch crypto interface, like a Robin hood. Uh, and versus like a very crypto native, like on-chain uh, sort of user. And it almost seems like their UX is right in between those two those two things. But I, I still do think they, you know, I, I actually downloaded it after that episode and it is super easy. Same. You can just generate, yeah. I mean, I, I see what he means. Like, for instance, there should just be a default. It should put you on one chain, for instance, and uh, you should have the option to flip because it was a little confusing. It's like, wait, there are different versions of this token and I don't know which chain I should uh, go on. But but that that said, I mean, it did abstract probably 75, 80% of the, of the pain of MetaMask, for instance. It was a great first shot at getting something in the App Store, as we discussed, um, and getting something live with the brand of Uniswap. I think they'll probably move in the direction of easier, easier onboarding, easier user experience to get more of that consumer base. And I agree. So the other take that Miles had was like, it seems like they're going after onboarding new people as opposed to building the power tools in a mobile device that already existing like crypto native DeFi users are going to want to use. Um, <clears throat> they'll just start to like chip away at all the different product fixes and bug fixes and whatever to make it easier and easier over time. Um, as we were talking about, it's also a lot easier to get in the app store and then make changes and updates than it is to like have this full-fledged product that you spend a year on and then try to get it through. Yeah. I I just think it's, it's in my, my hope is that we do change the use. Cause right now it basically happens through exchanges, centralized exchanges, and, uh, definitely lots of props and love to, to Coinbase. But I think it would be cool if we could change the, the user onboarding flow into something that immediately put people on chain. And I think the mobile wallet from Uniswap is very interesting. I think GameFi could be interesting if that wallet wallet wall problem is solved, but um, yeah. I, I mean, like pretty great setup for whatever comes next that we have like all of these mobile onboarding funnels. We have like Coinbase derivatives launching off offshore. We have on-chain activity and ETH move to proof of stake, L2 scaling, like everything looks pretty positive, even though like Michael and I were talking about this, uh, ETH is, you know, at 2K, Bitcoin is like around 30K. People are just, they got beaten down so hard in 2022 that, you know, it feels like they're still dealing with the, some of the like post-traumatic stress disorder of, of that year. But 
that's also kind of what you need. Like you need the disbelief. You need even the OGs like kind of like fading it. I don't know. This Yano and I've talked about this. The in twenty nineteen, the whole market almost three xed, and very no one was really talking back then about like it's the return of the bull market, and like that was the time to be getting involved. I that's the kind of thing we we've been waiting for a little bit because in in before FTX, you know, we were in a bear market, but on every pump, people would be like, maybe it's the bull market again. And I think you did need that to get stamped out. And I think this is the most it, optimistic. This is the most bullish bear market. I've only been to, but this, I feel like well, this is, <laughs> <laughs> you know, throughout, throughout your long storied career, yeah. my long storied career. Yeah. Uh, second rodeo, but I it, do think that you feel like there's six months ahead of us in terms of like where they are in the bear market. Like it's like pretty interesting. People are definitely more optimistic. Um, and I think that's just because they have the local governments kind of behind them in one way or the other. Interesting. I mean, they also had the their explosions happen six months prior to you know the FTX explosion, which is probably more you know domiciled in the U.S. just based on the connections that they had. So, like, I, I mean, I, I'm I'm a staunch believer that 2023, if you look back on on, and I do this a fair amount, uh, you look back on the trajectory of 2017, 18, 19, 20, 21, like 2019 is the the best comp that we have for for what 2023 will probably be. And you had things like Algorand launching in May of 2020 or 2019. You had kind of like Bitcoin bottoming and then 3Xing really quickly. Like there there were a lot of kind of like bullish little green shoots that you could point to in 2019 that um, people were just getting excited about. And and this was before DeFi even existed as like a category. Um, and And it feels like we're still on the precipice of that with the backdrop, Mike, to your point of ETH Bitcoin, DeFi, all having happened already, it's just kind of like, what is the next thing? You know, it's a crazy Asia perspective that that somebody told me that like basically stopped me in my track. They were like, yeah, like US got wrecked last cycle. I was like, yeah, well, you guys did too. They're like, no, no, but like you guys got wrecked by Voyager, Celsius, FTX, you know, like BlockFi, <laughs> Genesis. They're like, yeah, our country protected us from that. I was like, I'm not sure that's how it happened, but like, I understand your point. Like, <laughs> but yeah, we just looked yeah. like incredibly stupid. Um, and yeah, you know, a bunch of else. But some of it's like, frankly, like the fault of regulators letting this stuff happen. Like, if you could distinguish the good guys from the bad guys, we probably would have been able to, you know, distinguish who SBF was, who Alex Mashinsky was. I don't even know who that Voyager guy was that was running it out of his garage, but like, Come on, like that shouldn't have been very hard to tell. All right, guys, I think we gotta leave it here. 